Stay with me. Mark 10, starting at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit upon him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, Do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism that I baptize you? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, for it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, Lord of the rulers, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be a slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. They came to Jericho. As he and his disciples in a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, my teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever been at a table where you were being asked to sit in multiple places? Has anybody ever had an experience like that where you're getting pulled in multiple places of where you want to sit? If you have kids... Potentially, this has happened to you numerous times. Kyra and Laura went through a stage where they wanted to both sit beside me and Chelsea. Now, if you're thinking logically, that's not really possible. So I remember one time Chelsea and I figured it out. We were at a restaurant. We didn't want to make a big commotion. We were just kind of at the ends of our what we could handle. So we're like, okay, Kyra, you can sit in my lap, nor you can sit in Chelsea's lap. And so we kind of figured it out, and I think they were okay with that. Well, I'm kind of next to Mommy and Daddy, and I'm kind of next to Daddy and Mommy. Okay. But that happened for a while. Now, 
it's like anybody can go out to dinner with or we have dinner with, it's like, oh, I want to sit next to Bree or I want to sit next to Nani and call their grandparents. So it's not as big of an issue now. But if you're a parent, you probably know how that feels. You're getting pulled in multiple directions. Well, I can't help but think this is what Jesus was thinking. Wait a minute, James and John, you're asking one on my left and one on my right. You guys didn't even listen to what I'm about to say. Another story for you today. Have you ever been in a situation where you need to be two places at the same time? Right? I had a, I, I keep a Google calendar. I keep it really well. I'm very organized with it. I rarely double schedule myself. Right? So back in the fall, um, my uh, Chelsea's cousin is getting married. They call us up. Um, they said, hey, the wedding's going to be. April the 25th of 2020. This was more than six months away. We're like, great, we put it on the calendar and we go. Two weeks later, my dad calls me. He says, Kevin, we're not going to be able to do a family Christmas with his extended family this year from some circumstances that happened, but we're going to plan a big family reunion get together in April. I'm like, great, Dad. And that sounds great. We're, we're all in. Not thinking that, wait a minute, six months ahead, I had something going on. And then it hit me. After he had gone through everything and fear everybody's dates, I'm like, Dad, please just don't tell me it's April. He said, 25th? I said, yeah. He said, yep, that's the day we're doing it. Right? The wedding's in Illinois. The family reunion is in Birmingham, Alabama. Same time. Same time. <laughs> well, same month, this April, I had a conference. The one conference I go to at Trebekah every year. First weekend in April. Right? Also, our state financial aid conference that I always go to. It's never happened. You know when it is this year? First week of April. I want a clone this year. If we can figure out how to clone, like I could have clone Kevin do some extra work at the office or do the house chore that I don't want to do. But for all these things, I feel like this year is like everything is happening on the same day. Whereas I have whole weekends that have nothing going on. It just happens to be the same time. You guys ever feel that way? That everything just like, you need more than one Chad. You need more than one Zach. I just wonder how often Jesus felt this way. And we'll get into this a little bit. You can really feel the angst of location in this passage. The go, go, go. I'll point out real fast when we get into this passage. Do you notice in verse 46? It says, they came to Jericho, and then immediately they were leaving Jericho. Like, it's just constant. They're going, going, going. Jesus experienced the same sort of thing. He couldn't be everywhere at the same time. And even the closest people with him that he was training up to be Christ-like, to be like little Christ that went out, they didn't really seem to get it, right? They were asking questions that had nothing to do with what Jesus was talking about. It sounds pretty stressful. Mark is a unique gospel, and the fact that it tends to get to the point very quickly. We've been going through Mark uh, this year, part of our narrative lectionary. Mark is also very intentional. Maybe it's not surprising that the, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. Yet Mark gets to the point here. We get two stories of healing of blindness in the Gospel of Mark. One is in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus spits on the guy's eyes, if you remember, and he then sees like, Hey, these people look like trees. And then Jesus spits on again, and it's like, oh, hey, I can see actual people here. And in the story of the blind Bartimaeus being healed, these stories are bookends. 
for three consecutive examples of Jesus, and it literally follows the same pattern in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Jesus foretelling his destiny, we see this in 32 through 34 in our passage. The disciples totally not getting it, or getting off track in our story here. And then Jesus doing his best to try to teach them and show them, no, 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 this is the better way. Again, this is exactly what we see here. We see this played out in multiple Gospels as well. Blindness is seen both as an accurate depiction of an event. Bartimaeus was blind. That's true right here. But also as a metaphor of people not acknowledging who Jesus is. A spiritual blindness. So let's do a little recap of Jesus' closest friends. Right? Jesus had 12 really close friends. We call them disciples. And amongst the 12 disciples, he had three really close friends. According to scripture, you can kind of look at it. Peter, James, and John. Well, we see in chapter 8, uh, Jesus rebukes Peter and calls him Satan. And he calls him Satan, get behind me, right? Chapter 9, the disciples are arguing over rank, right? They want to be who's first, who's last. And then his other two favorites, James and John, right here in our passage, are arguing who's going to sit closest to Jesus, which then in turn makes the other disciples pretty angry, right? So I want to go through this passage a little bit to point out a few key pieces that will kind of help us see the fullness of this passage here. All right. So if you look back at verse 32, if you have your passage, you can kind of follow along here. We'll jump down through this pretty quickly, but like I said, I did want to point out a few things. You we see this going, going, going right at the outset of verse 32. On the road, we're going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is walking ahead of them. They're, they're on the move, right? They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. We see this a lot in Scripture, this dichotomy of amazement and fear at the same time, being in awe of Jesus and what the things Jesus was doing, the miracles, the signs, but yet being very afraid and not understanding and being very fearful of the situation. And so it's very interesting to me that they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Get down between the verse 35. Again, it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's a pretty audacious question, especially if Jesus just was talking about how he's going to be mocked, spit flogged, even killed. And then, at least according to the gospel writer here, it's like they didn't even take a breath. Oh, Jesus, um... We want you to do whatever we ask of you. Again, if you have a kid, I've had Kyra say this before to me. She'll walk up with a sneaky grin on her face. And she's like, hey, Dad, can you just say yes to whatever I'm about to ask you? <laughs> I'm like, definitely not. And she's like, oh, but please, please, please just say yes. I'm like, clearly, this is going to be a no answer. But that's literally what these disciples are doing. Like, we want you to do whatever we're about to ask you to do. Like, can you go ahead and just agree to it? Jesus is me, oh, okay. So he asked, what is it you want me to do for you? And they, they list, again, I want to sit on your right, I want to sit on your left. And Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink, be baptized with the baptism I've been baptized with? That's our sacraments, right? The cup and the baptism. These two sacred things are coming together. And I, get, I don't think the disciples get it when they immediately re reply, we are equal. Are you? Are you James and John? Are you 
really understanding what's going on here? They don't think they get it at all here. Even though they've spent time with Jesus, even though they have seen the things that Jesus has done, they don't understand. Their hearts are blind. They have actual eyesight, they can see, but their hearts are blind. Skip down with me to verse 41. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. Oh, I'd be angry. Would you be angry if this sounds like corporate America, right? A coup happening amongst the twelve. And hey, um, Caleb, let's go over here and um, let's go to the boss and we'll step over everybody else and we'll get what we think is ours to the detriment of everybody else. This is corporate America. This is how our society runs. You're stepping over people so you can get something better. Who knew James and John were so knowledgeable about 21st century America? I digress. Um, <laughs> verse 44. Jesus is talking here, explaining. It says, And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Hey, I was talking to Caleb Zimmer about this this morning. That is such a weird phrase in the Greek. It's like a doulos patron. That does not make sense. It's an oxymoron. You cannot be a slave to more than one master. A slave is the lowest of the low, but you cannot be, it doesn't make sense, you cannot be slave of all. You're slave to one master. You're slave to something. You're not slave to all. And yet, Jesus is saying, whoever wishes to be first among you must be that. That's a head-scratcher for the disciples. They're probably, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? That is literally impossible. But I think Jesus is continually explaining it this way because they don't understand. They don't get it. Verse 46, again, we see this passage. They're coming to Jericho. They're on the move. As soon as they come to Jericho in the Gospel of Mark, they're leaving them. And this is where we get the story of blind Bartimaeus. He yells out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We miss this a little bit, and this is very nuanced, but after reading some commentaries, it's, it's, I do want to mention it for a second. In the Greek, uh, word order is not as particular, but there's a few things that point to how words should be ordered. The, our best indication is Bartimaeus would have yelled out, son of David, first. Now, again, you may be thinking, okay, that's irrelevant. But yet, to call somebody first and foremost, son of David, i.e. Messiah, first and foremost, is an acknowledgement of something more than what James and John have been doing, even as Jesus' own disciples walking and living with him. This blind man is calling Jesus Messiah, son of David. And we see it in verse 48, later on, that Jesus isn't used. It's just the son of David. We see right in the middle of that that many sternly ordered him to be quiet. If we don't see the connection yet between the child in chapter 8 and this passage, we see it in this review. Sorry, chapter 8 or 9, where Jesus had the little children. It's this same type of review. Many sternly ordered him Quiet, just like they were ordering the children. No, you can't come close to Jesus. No, blind Bartimaeus, you can't come. That happens a lot in Scripture, right? The people that we push away, that Scripture pushes away, Jesus invites to be in his presence. 
And then in 51, we see this same phrase. We notice that Jesus then asked Bartimaeus the exact same question that he asked James and John. But instead of almost an sort of ambiguous answer, what does it mean to grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in glory? Like, does James and John even know what that means? Clearly they don't. Bartimaeus knows what he wants. He wants to see a gift. He wants to see. And not unintentional, I think Mark ends this by saying, immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way, or on the house. This was the original word Christians would have used for Christians. Christianity's original name, if you didn't know, was the way. Right? And so you would have almost a secret handshake um, in times where Christianity was illegal. Or you might mention something, are you a part of the way? Oh, yes, yes, I'm a part of the way. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. Right? He got it. This passage leaves one commentary. I love this little quote here, so I'm stealing it from them. Um, called this passage, the sightless see, the sighted are blind. The sightless see. The sighted are blind. There's enough Jesus in the full form of God to go around. There's enough Jesus to go around for all of us. But you can see the frustration with Jesus here, fully man, fully God. He's one man here. I can't help but think that the passage like this this situation amongst others would lead Jesus to say in John 16, 7, but truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. It's kind of crazy to think. Jesus is saying this. It's good that I am going away because unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And that's John 16, 7. It was very difficult for Jesus to be in one more than one place at a time. That's, again, one reason he recruited disciples. He was going to train up to then go out to be a little Christ. But, again, at this point, the disciples didn't understand this. They weren't catching it. Why? Because they could see with their eyes. They could see the miracles. But their heart had not been opened up yet. The blinders were still on their heart. They didn't understand. Even when Jesus was right in front of them, they didn't get it. This week, you couldn't help but hear and know about the tornadoes that went through Nashville. You couldn't help but hear about the people giving thanks to God, the protection, the uh, people talking about how God has saved their family. If you look hard enough, you probably could see them, people asking the question, why did God let such an atrocity happen, and so on. And so sometimes when life seems normal, and I think this happens in tragedy and in joys and happiness all the time, but when life seems normal, we tend to forget God is here. That Christ walks with us. That Christ is in us. That Christ is with us. Not in human form. It'd be great to have Jesus here this morning, right? But not in human form. But through the Spirit. So as I talk, countless people around the world are worshiping God and are in His presence. Now, I've always thought about that. Millions and millions and millions of people 
And scripture says, where just two or three are gathered in my name, I am here. And we need to remember that we don't conjure up God. We're not here saying certain things or clapping a certain way or singing certain songs to conjure up God's presence. God doesn't just show up in the low lows of our life or the high highs or in a specific kind of gathering. God is here. God is here. God is here in the tornadoes and the hurricanes and the coronavirus. God is here. God is already at work around us. He wants to use us, right? We're being invited into God's mission, but we don't need to forget it's God's mission, not our mission that we're inviting God into. It's God's mission that he's invited us into because God has gone before us. And quite frankly, God will go after us. And God will go in the midst of us. We have the advocate, the Holy Spirit with us. Our eyes have been opened appropriately. And we hopefully have seen that even in tragedy, the kingdom of God is still breaking in. The kingdom of God is still there. God is there in the hurt and pain. And God's presence is there in the joy and the happiness. So when's the last time you have just sat in God's presence? No agenda, no... I'm going to do this, or I'm going to even read that. Good things. I'm going to pray this. Good things. But when's the last time you just sat in God's presence? Letting down yourself and your expectations of what that even looks like and how God is, and just allow God to be. Just allow God to be. Instead of trying to one-up your fellow human. Instead of trying to look a certain way or be something that people think you should be like, you sat. You sat at the feet of Jesus. You were. You are. And listened, knowing that God, knowing that you are in God's presence, realizing you're just dust, but also you're a child of God. You're a child of God. What I want to do in this next three or four minutes, I invite each other. As we're wrapping up this morning, I want to give us a chance to just sit in God's presence. Just to be, just to sit in His presence this morning.